Welcome to Authors Unedited, a podcast with Dominic Stevenson. So, I hope everyone had a good uh, Christmas, New Year, and you are back and fighting fit and ready for more, what I hope, amazing conversations with brilliant writers. So, my name is Dominic Stevenson, and this is the Authors Unedited podcast, and please can my guests for today introduce themselves. Hello, Dom. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name's Chris McQueen. Cool. And Chris is someone who I admired before I moved to Scotland. I read his books as soon as they were gifted to me, and they're incredible, and I'm really, really excited to have him on. In fact, they were... One of them was a present for my brother-in-law Dave for Christmas and I know doesn't listen to this but my sister Danielle does so Dave's getting the second book uh, signed for his birthday soon so uh, don't get in that if you're thinking about getting it then now. <laughs> um, so yeah to, to start off with Chris like you you started putting your writing online mm-hmm. originally like you Aye. sort of didn't go down what many would see as a traditional path. Mm-hmm. So why why was that? Um, I had, I started putting them online because when I first started writing my stories, I had a wee look at kind of literary magazines to, to send them to, and then I thought I don't actually know anybody who reads these, and I've never read one, so it seems a bit weird for me to send away. And I felt like if I, if I was sending it to these these magazines, I felt you know maybe they only get you know a dozen two dozen readers, so. I didn't really see much point and I was like well I could just put it online I've got a few thousand followers on Twitter and stuff I could just put it online and instantly I'm getting more people reading it and then I felt like that would kind of increase my chances of getting published if I could just kind of show online that I had an audience for my work then it would kind of work a wee bit better in my favour so um, I, that's why I went for online and it was good as well because it was just like kind of instant feedback off people you could send it away to a magazine it could take two or three months for you to get an acceptance or rejection um, you maybe won't get any notes for an editor or anything so as soon as I put it online I was getting you know feedback from people going you know this is good or this is shit or people would message me and go you know I like this but you could have structured that a wee bit differently and I go alright cool take that on board and it was just nice just that instant kind of feedback on your work and it just it gave me a wee boost and it kept me writing which was nice so cause I, I think if when I'd started writing the kind of first few months if I was maybe getting knockbacks to places it would have kind of disheartened me a wee bit and I probably wouldn't have kept going, so I'm glad I went that way. I think that's really interesting what you say about like people giving you feedback and mm-hmm. constructive criticism, mm-hmm. because I, I know people and like, I, I think I'm sort of past feeling it myself, but I'm sure I have at times, that it's difficult to take mm-hmm. criticism. And I suppose mm-hmm. as someone so fledgling, mm-hmm. like, how did that feel? Like the first... First time it happened, first few times? I think the first story I put online, it was all just like my pals and like people I knew through Twitter all saying nice things to me, so that was really nice. And it was maybe like the second or third story, I started getting people going, I didn't like this one as much as the first one or whatever. And then I would get, you know, messages from people that didn't follow me that would message me and say, you know, why are you putting this online? This is rubbish, kind of thing. And I was like, oh, shit. So it was like, I don't know, the first wee bit of criticism was like a punch to my gut. But now, like, I remember reading, like, the first kind of bad reviews in my first book. There was only a couple, thankfully. And then they kind of, they hurt me a wee bit. But then at the same time, it was like, 
someone had lit a wee fire under Mars almost. I was like, right, I'll, fucking, I'll show you. Like, you think I can, right? I'll show you. I'll, my next book will be better then, and you'll like that. And if you don't like that, then you'll like the one after that. And I just, it's nice now, so every now and again I go in and read, I go into like Goodreads or Amazon, and I'll look at the kind of one and two star reviews and see what people don't like about my books. I try and take it on board. And, you know, Disney, Disney give me that horrible feeling now. Well, before it used to ruin my day, but now I'm just kind of like, all right, cool, like, maybe something about writing that I hadn't noticed, or that other people hadn't told me before, but people didn't like the way I'd used a narrator, or simile, or metaphor, or whatever I'd used, it was, it was nice seeing the kind of negative, the things that people didn't like, it was nice to see that, and I brought my writing on kind of leaps and bounds, and it just it kind of motivates me now when I get a bad review, so I quite like it. <laughs> and if you didn't read literary magazines mm. or have necessarily an interest in that world what brought you to writing in the first place or why did you first pick up a pen um, I think I've, I've always been a big reader um, my granny and my mum were big readers they were always taking me to the library when I was younger and there was always books always had books on the go and I was always being gifted books as well and then kind of all through school like what I liked most was like English and especially the creative writing exercises I really liked them but I wasn't really, I felt like I was alright at it, but I wasn't encouraged to write whatever I wanted to write. It was just, you know, you need to write to this structure, it needs to be slow, it needs to be about this, it needs to have this in it, it needs to have this. So you're just kind of writing by numbers, so I didn't really like that. And then, but I was always like, even when, after I left school, I was always a wee voice in my head, like, you should try writing, you should do it, you should do it, you should do it. And then I just didn't do it until I was, I think it was 20, I'm 28 now, so I was 24 when I first started. And it was just one of the things, I just thought, if I don't do it now, I probably will never do it, so I'll just give it a go. If I'm bad at it, it's fine, it doesn't matter. And if I'm good at it, well, I've found something new, I've found a new hobby and a, something I love. So, um, And then once I, this, once I really got into it and I found myself really enjoying it, I was like, this is brilliant, this is excellent, man. Maybe I could do this for a living one day. And that was my plan. I was like, just, I'll just keep writing until I can do it for a living and something will happen eventually. And that's what happened, thankfully. So, and so um, how, how did you go from someone who was putting stories on Twitter to someone now with books, TV shows, novel mm -hmm. in the works. So what, what was the journey from Hing's, sorry, from the tweets to mm -hmm. Hing's, your first book? It was really, really, um, really like kind of whirlwind. So started putting stuff online and then while I was doing that, I kind of started thinking that I would like to have like a kind of a publishing credit to my name so I could get something published and just to say I'd had something published, sorry. So I started looking on Scottish Book Trust website, looking for places to submit to, and I sent things to like Gutter and stuff like that. And then one of the things I noticed in Scottish Book Trust website was a wee call out for 404 Inc. They were running a literary magazine. And then I went on their website and they were, you know, they were just brand new at this point. They wanted to, start a mag wanted to start a magazine and they were wanting to publish books as well. So in my head, I was like, right, if I can get something in their magazine, that's a foot in the door for when they then publish books. So I sent them something, they, they published that, they really liked it. I got invited to read a story at their lunch party, and that was the first time I'd, I'd ever done that. I didn't know you could go on stage and tell stories, I had no idea that was a thing at this point. So I went and did that, and then when I kind of came off stage, I was talking to Heather and Laura for 404. I did a few pints by this point, full of bravado, and I was like, listen, I've got a hard drive full of short stories, would you just want to have a look at them? Maybe put them together in a book or something and they were like I would really like to take a look at it I was like right, brilliant and then I woke up the next morning like oh it's mortifying I was like you know what I mean like 
I don't know, Lauren Heller must have felt, like in my head, they must have felt like how like a doctor would feel at like a 90 year old's birthday party. Like just people asking for things off you and just blah, blah, blah. blah. And I was like, oh God, I'm one of these people who just accosts publishers and harangues them. And so I never, never sent them the stories. And then a couple of weeks later, I get an email from Laura saying, we're interested in these stories, we asked you to send, you them. send us them. Can you send us them? And I was like, oh my God, they're serious. So I sent them, sent them away. Another week later, they invited me to Edinburgh for a meeting. And that was, they told me I would love to publish these as, as a book. Can you go away and write us a couple extra? Just to up the word count a bit. And I was like, I, of course, no bother. Went away, did that, and then, aye, that's, that's what became Hings. And then, aye, so I just kept going for that point. And so you've got the book deal, but mm-hmm. what what was the editing process? They're going through all that because uh, again, like with the feedback we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. like some people have real challenges being edited mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. their work is so personal. To them. Aye, but, aye. but what's it like as someone totally new to this world who, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, one of the most prominent publishing houses in Scotland aye, aye. wants to work with you, but mm-hmm. probably edit your work? Mm-hmm. Aye. It was really good. Um, I worked with my editor, Robbie Gallery. Um, she was with Fruit Books, and he, he came with quite a big kind of reputation. He was really good. And um, I spoke briefly through emails. He was telling me he was reading the book and he was liking it. But um, he was like, But there's a lot of work he's done. You can tell you're a new author that's really raw. It's going to need a bit of work to get it up to scratch. And I was like, Right, okay. And I felt a bit disheartened because I, I had felt what I had written. I'd kind of self edited it, self edited it, and I thought, what I had written was, was quite final and I felt like they were in really good positions and then he read them and he was like no <laughs> these need a lot of work but then so I, I kind of thought an editor would like suggest the changes and he would be kind of making the story into what he thought it would be and I thought I would just be rewriting the stories as to how someone else wanted them almost but that wasn't really what it was like it was like him sitting down and going I would change this what do you think should happen what do you think would be better and as well as kind of editing the stories. He was trying to make me a better writer, which was really nice. He was really, really taking the time to kind of coach me through it and let me arrive at the conclusions on my own and let me arrive at what, what the things should change to on my own, which was really good. And at the end of it, I was really, really proud of what, what I'd produced. We kind of rewrote almost every story. And I was left thinking, this is in a much better state than it was before. And then I was reading back the old drafts and I was like, these are terrible. <laughs> like, <laughs> and um, I was brilliant. So, um, and then I worked with him again on the second book. Like, same again, it was just brilliant. It's just, I love working with an editor, it's really good. Especially somebody who just gets your work and gets you as a person and wants to help you. It's really nice, it's really good. And quite a lot of what you write is in Scots. Mm-hmm. And was that something during the editing process? Like, was your editor a Scots speaker or a Scots writer? Did that pose any challenges? I, he, he's uh, English, so... But he, he lived in Scotland, so he had a good ear for kind of Scots, Scots dialect and he was Scots language, sorry. And he was going getting through it and it would maybe be some wee words or a phrase that he hadn't heard before and he'd be like what does that mean so it was a story I had written um, like the line was half an hour later there was a chap at the door meaning like a knock at the door and he was like you said there's a chap at the door but well, it's a woman that's on the other side of the door what, what do you mean I was like what like, chap the door he just chapped the door like knocking the door and he's like oh right I didn't know that's what that meant wow and then just wee things like that I hadn't thought of I was like wow that's weird week in a language barrier there um, I, I just I love, love writing, in, writing in Scots and part of me was worried that maybe the publishers of the editor was going to try and 
like to take that out and make make me write it in English, but they weren't they're really keen for me to do it in Scots and um I didn't really push me to do it in, in Scots, which was good. So I just write in the Scots, it's just a much, much easier for me, it's the way but the voice in my head is like in Scots, so it's just easy to just get it done on paper. And do you think that you have made writing Scots a bit more mainstream? Because I know when I was at university I borrowed a copy of Trainspotting from mm-hmm. um friend of mine, Erica, uh, who I presume doesn't listen to the podcast, but <laughs> boo to you, Erica, who was from Orkney and had so much trouble reading it that I gave I, up. Wow. Um, because I, I'd never... She sort of had Orcadian dialect, mm-hmm. not necessarily the same sort of Scots, and so I didn't, I'd never come across people who spoke in Scots, and so it felt quite alien to me, but was reading yours living here for a time like it felt much more of a natural thing but Mm. do you think it could be a hindrance to you going more mainstream i don't i don't know i kind of i kind of worried about that um after the second book came out and i was kind of looking at where the book was selling and it's not it's not really selling outside of scotland but then i look at you know guys like oven welsh you know he's been translated into japanese and you know loads of people in england have read his books and they've been turned into films and stuff so and i think um Kind of Glaswegian Scots is a bit more accessible than you know, the Edinburgh version of Scots, especially the Urban Welshies. That can that was kind of hard for me to read as a Glaswegian. I kind of struggled with parts of it. Whereas I think kind of Glaswegian Scots is a wee bit easier to, easier to read. So, um, but I don't know. I think it's a lot. It's down to down to like attitudes. So guys like um, like a great of the Hull, Russ Lytton, who writes in the kind of Hull dialect, and I can read that, and he could read mine. So it's all about just being open to reading and other dialects and other kind of versions of the English language so but if you do read it if you read anything written in a different dialect you can you tune into it after a couple of pages if you just give it a go you're just open to it you can read it like the amount of people that have read a clockwork orange that's you know it's got like Russian slang in it and by the end of it you can it all clicks and you get it all so if you just give it a go like you can so just people are just a bit more open-minded about Scots it wouldn't be an issue so yeah. and you've been compared to the aforementioned Irving Welsh Charlie mm-hmm. Brooker Limmy mm-hmm. How how does that feel? Like they are greats of literature. They mm-hmm. are great comedians. They are mm-hmm. great filmmakers, uh, and yet somehow you have turned into this. Um, I've I've forgotten what it's called. The Leonardo da Vinci thing. The where is on. Oh, I <laughs> the, someone who can master a lot of things, mm-hmm. and but how how does that feel? Like that's quite an epic comparison for someone uh, who's. At the time, I'd release one book of short Aye, stories. Big time. Um, when the first book came out, and we got the, the, the quote for the cover, and it was Lemmy meets Oven Welsh. And Lemmy and Oven Welsh are two guys I really admire, I really like their work. So that was amazing. I said, like, wow, that's, that's a dream come true. You know, I'm being compared to two of my heroes, that's really nice. But then, after a kind of few months, like, kept, um, I don't know, I kept getting asked about the kind of comparisons to Oven Welsh and stuff. And I started to feel, I started to resent it a wee bit. I started to think, well, you know, am I just being lumped in with these guys because we're all Scottish writers and we're men and we're writing a dialect? I feel like, I don't know, I was kind of looking at my work again, I was looking at Lindy's work and I was looking at Oven Welsh's and I was like, I don't know, there's not really that many similarities, I don't think, other than we're writing a vernacular. And then it kind of started to feel like I kind of weight on my shoulders as well because I thought people will be packing up my book who like Oven Welsh without having heard of me. They'll maybe just see his name on the cover and think, oh, that'll, that'll do me, that's... Like Oven Welsh, I like Oven Welsh. 
So then I need to live up to fucking Oven Welsh, which felt like a big ask. When I'd only been writing for a wee while and it was my first book, so now I'm just I'm kind of trying to get away from the comparisons. As nice as that, I, like, I quite like the Charlie Brooker one, so I'm a big fan of Black Mirror. But um, I'd like to kind of forge my own path and get away from the comparisons to other writers a wee bit. So one day, hopefully. <laughs> and, and you said in The Guardian a mm-hmm. while ago that you feel that you're not exposed to people enough anymore because mm-hmm. you, what now seems famously, worked in a sports shop. Aye. And that is very much part of the myth of Chris McQuaid. That, <laughs> that in, in all honesty, I genuinely didn't know if you had. Aye, aye. Like that, true, that, aye. <laughs> that, that part of me thought, did he... I, did he go to like Oxbridge and then <laughs> has made it working in Sports Direct because it's cooler? Or no, like, and, and it it just feels like the mythology aye, aye. of you. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's because the world hasn't got enough writers like you that mm-hmm. that the fact that you succeeded mm-hmm. almost seems like a a myth that aye. you're this literature ghost that comes and treats us with a book and then puts up in the wind. But, but, but yeah, you said that you feel you're not exposed to people anymore since mm. you left working there. But mm-hmm. do you think that writers are disconnected from from people? That that so many so many authors, I think, not necessarily published ones, but people who are trying to get published, they mm-hmm. get told write what you know, so mm-hmm. they write a very insular story. Aye, aye, aye. Or they go the other way and they write about seven-legged aliens from the planet uh-huh. Zog. And, but you seem to have found this outward-looking way of writing, which is insular in the sense that you look at the people of Glasgow mm-hmm. or the people that come into your periphery, mm-hmm. but it's very external. Like, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, do you think that writers are too often disconnected from people? Nowadays. I I think so. I think um, when I first left the shop, I felt like I wasn't leaving the house, and I felt like my writing struggled because of it. Because I've got right, I've got all this time that I can devote to writing. Like, so I was trying to give myself. I was like, right, I'd be at work for eight hours. So instead of going to work, I'm now going to devote that time to writing. But I found that like before when I was working, I was like serving loads of people every day, and I was getting stories off them. I was talking to them, and I was building characters around about my customers I was serving, and. I just I felt like I had so much more inspiration then all of a sudden I'm just in my room all the time just sitting at a laptop and I just I wasn't getting that stimulation and it was it was weird I kind of struggled with it and I found myself having to draw back and I'm trying to think of customers I'd served and think of all the things that happened to me to try and get some ideas and I just I I found it I found it quite difficult so like but now I just I make a point now like getting myself out and like involving myself with people because it's too easy to then just become like a hermit like that's kind of I'm starting to creep back into being a hermit again but I need to try and stop it um, do you need that you need to be out about with people you need to be hearing voices to write good dialogue I think you need to be always exposing yourself to external stimulus to give yourself ideas and people to base your stories around so I, I, think, it, I think it can be easy for writers to kind of sort of disengage with reality a wee bit and just retreat to their computer and, yeah, one, one story that I've heard you read several times is really amazing piece about um, a lad who wears crisp packets mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, instead of football boots mm-hmm. and it just really you because when I worked in bars and mm-hmm. in offices and 
people would always say, oh, you should write about this one day. Aye, aye. And you're the writer who wrote about it. Mm-hmm. And it works. Aye, and aye. it just seems that so many people are making the mistake of ignoring aye. life mm-hmm. instead Definitely. of embracing it. Aye. Definitely. There's so much out there. Like, honestly, like, every day when I was working on the show, I was going home kind of three or four ideas for short stories just from people I'd served and the stories they'd tell me or the way they would carry themselves or the way they looked just anything it was just so much constant stimulus it was brilliant so I think you need you need that I definitely need to be exposing yourself to people I, I, I like as well like, I was reading about like it's quite, I quite like writing um, kind of surreal stuff and I was looking at other kind of surreal writers and one of the things the kind of background all these kind of surrealist writers seem to have is like they all come from quite working class backgrounds and a lot of them feel like Russia and stuff they all come kind of war-tone like poverty as well and it's all about you know they're kind of rejecting reality almost they're kind of rejecting the mundanity of real life and they're looking outwards and they're trying to you know paint it beautiful colours and exaggerate it and make a better life for their characters inside their head and I really liked that and I kind of thought oh, maybe I'm kind of doing that not that extreme but um, that actually makes nice, that kind of just rejecting reality and creating your own. And do you think, because like you, as as you said, just mentioned, working class writers, and although you may or may not want to be have a labour attached, you mm. are a writer mm. who worked, who published oh, yeah. while working. Mm. I'd probably call you a working class writer. Aye. Do you think that? A, whether the literary world is welcoming to working class writers. Mm-hmm. Do you think enough is done to promote their voices? Mm-hmm. I um, I found it at the very, very start, I found it quite welcoming. And I found everybody was really nice to me. But then, I don't know, it was maybe a couple of months into having the first book published and I was going to these events and I was meeting all these other writers and publishers and agents and stuff. And I felt like I was being really patronised. I felt like really these people were really talking down to me these people were really think I'm some kind of caveman they think I've just magically scribbled you know, cobbled this book together and it's a miracle that I've somehow managed to even pick up a pen that's kind of how it felt and um, meeting journalists and stuff I almost felt like they were like, oh good for you you're working in a wee show you've written a wee book and it felt like they were just ruffling my hair and sending me on my way it felt really weird and I'd never felt that that way before I'd never really felt looked down on before like that and I felt you know like Sometimes at spoken word events, I would just go in and talk to a talk, and I would, I would swear on some of the stories. I could see people like clutching their pearls, and oh my god, that's fantastic the way you swear. I've never heard anything like that before. I'm like, I just said fuck, like it's, it's wild, it's so weird. And then, so I was welcoming in, in the sense that um, people were open to it, and they wanted to hear my story, and they wanted to talk to me, and they wanted to find out about me. But I did feel quite patronised, and I did feel quite looked down upon as well. But, um, I think there is more of an appetite for working class writing just now, and I think um, there's a lot more working class writers now before kind of coming to the, coming to the fore, and I think that's a that's a good thing, definitely. And do you think Scotland is a good place for working class writers? Because <clears throat> something that we discussed in conversation prior to recording this is that well, I I come from England, and mm-hmm. a lot of Working class people are at the minute labelled Brexit, mm-hmm. jobs, aye, aye. racist, fascist. Mm-hmm. It all gets thrown at them. And while I would argue that a big chunk of that is true, mm-hmm. 
also I come from working class background. I'd hope, although I can occasionally swear at people on Twitter oh, as well, <laughs> that I'm not one of those. And and I suppose, mm. whereas in Scotland, because there is what is perceived by many to be more of a universal acceptance of people, mm-hmm. tolerance, embracing of others. Mm-hmm. Do you think it might be easier to be a working class writer in Scotland than in other places? Um, I think so. I don't. I don't um, know much about the kind of literary scene down south, but um, up here, it's, um, I, it's, it's felt good. And um, I don't. I don't know. I don't know my kind of feeling. I don't. I don't have much of a base for this opinion, but I just feel that like Scotland Scottish readers would be more open to reading working class writers and um, I don't know, like That's a good question. <laughs> um, I I don't know. I don't know if kind of working class people are kind of fetishized a wee bit, you know. And I don't know how I feel about that. It feels kind of weird. And um, I no, like, I think it does feel, as you say, fetishized that mm-hmm. every newspaper article about working class people is looking for the archetypal working class person. Aye, aye. They're looking for the Tory working to man. Mm-hmm. They're looking for someone who lives in Bolsover who voted Dennis Skinner. Vote, <laughs> vote Tory despite Dennis Skinner paying the wages aye, aye. during the minor strikes. Like, mm-hmm. They're looking mm-hmm. for that person. And mm-hmm. it, it does feel like the good working class person who, you know, I mean, believes in positive things, isn't racist, mm-hmm. is a bit like a unicorn at the minute right. that people are so determined to spin this narrative of uneducated mm. unethical uncaring mm. that it hides a lot of the truth away mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's weird as well I found a wee bit of kind of um, as my kind of career's progressed I felt a wee bit of kind of backlash and it feels like people are trying to kind of catch me out for being working class and there's people questioning it and um, so as I started writing for the Evening Times like a kind of weekly column and somebody sent me a screenshot for this Rangers fans forum, followfollow.com, and they were saying, you know, I've just came across this big guy, Chris McQueer, never heard of him. Turns out he's a Celtic fan, playing on his kind of working class roots. What's the script here? Is this guy for real? And it was just all these guys, like, no, nah, he's definitely not working class. I've, I've heard him talk, or I've seen the way he dresses, or like, um, you know, I've done a bit of digging. Turns out he went to Glasgow Uni. I didn't go to uni. Like, just all oh, this mad shit, and it's just people constantly trying to catch you. you know I mean, anything I post on Twitter now about going anywhere, or doing anything, it's always people like, "Oh, you've changed," or you know, you you know who you say you are. You've you've turned your back on your your roots and all that, and it's just so weird. People just desperate for me to not actually be working class. Before it was kind of celebrated a wee bit, and people were like, "Oh, good for you, well done." And it's kind of the tide's kind of turned a wee bit, and they're just all waiting for me to become a prick and just become this really posh guy that. No, and it's really weird. It's, I don't know. Something I wasn't expecting. It's really odd. I'm sorry for suggesting that you made <laughs> mythic <laughs> sports shop, but but you're right. I think the like the politics of envy mm-hmm. is where society is at the minute, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it comes as no surprise to me that people don't want to believe in what you've done, what mm-hmm. you've achieved, and uh, where, yeah. where you come from, because mm-hmm. we have spent I don't know a thousand years of literature. Mm-hmm where first it was monks 
they were the only ones with pens and then it was politicians and the rich and then all of a sudden we have a universality mm-hmm. where we can all share our voices mm-hmm. and when people now realize that some people might be worth listening to people don't like it and i think uh-huh. it often reflects that they the people who go and do the digging and find lies and then mm. spread lies they're probably sort of thinking fuck i worked in the sports shop mm-hmm. i could have tried to write a book aye, aye. and i didn't aye, aye. Um, that's weird i've got other mouse quote he said you know he sold a thousand books nice pals in edinburgh well, oh, brilliant good for you mate well done one of your own he sold ten thousand and i'm like oh that's brilliant well done mate and he sold a hundred thousand and the same people just went aye you're a prick yeah. It's just it's bizarre. <laughs> it's weird. I mean, I sincerely hope everyone thinks you're a prick because you sell over a thousand books. Because <laughs> it's worth reading. Like it's it's an amazing two collections, amazing two collections of stories. When you perform them, you perform them so well, and you are so well regarded. You're the voice that when I was moving here and um, starting up listening softly spoken one night mm-hmm. you were the one like you were the we have to have him right. or we're not going to bother because if we can't have that voice then it's the point nice. like, well, nice. yeah and, <laughs> and I think like, I, I know like, I wish if I had a thousand quid to give you <laughs> I'd just give you that and a load of phone numbers of people that I know to say go and do some gigs I think, in London or something because yeah. you will be devoured once once however it happens your voice goes further you'll be d- devoured Aye. and I mean like going on to going further like you have recently just had your own three BBC shows out mm-hmm. how, how did that I, happen? It took a while to happen so not long after Hings came out um guy called Joe Hewlett, who's the creator and producer, director of Scott Squad on BBC Scotland, he read it and he really liked it, and he suggested, oh, why don't you go and pitch this to the BBC as a kind of anthology show? So I went and I pitched it, and BBC said, no, you're just a new writer, we don't have much evidence that this is going to be a success, whatever, so they knocked me back, but they kind of gave me some advice to kind of work on it a wee bit, so I went away and I went back to Joe and I said, you know, they've said no, but maybe here's how we could change it a wee bit. So he gave me some pointers, went back again, they said no again. And then he said, right, fuck it, I'll come in with you and I'll be your producer and we'll see how that goes. So he kind of redone the pitch and then we went back in and they said aye. So I had pitched for like a six part series each episode, like half an hour long with three stories in it. The BBC went, no, no chance. We're not giving you the money to make that. We don't know who you are. Like, I was like, fair enough. And then Joe was like, right, well, plan B, why don't you give us the money to go away and just make three five minute shots? And then if they do well, maybe we can we'll talk again about making a series. And he said, all right, we'll do that. So they gave us like a tiny, tiny budget to go away and make these three. So Joe's obviously really well connected, pulled in loads of favours. We got to make them. And um, he got me to like, rewrite the stories, rewrite um, write the scripts. Sorry. And um, first time I did that, first time I'd written like for the telly. So that was a big challenge, but I really, really enjoyed that. Like going back to something I'd written, because at this point the book was like two years old. And I've been writing every day trying to get better. So going back to the stories and having the chance to redo them and make them better, using everything I've learned over the last two years was really good. So um, I went away and made them, put them on the iPlayer. They've had a really nice reception. So 
fingers crossed we'll get to make some more. Yeah, I mean, I, I watched them when they when they mm. came out. Um, but I think one was like an hour late coming out or something mm. on our player. And I, I waited until like one in the morning <laughs> so to watch it. Um, but, but yeah, it was, it, again, it's, it's a thing like, I've, like we've only met a few times at mm. various events and I've seen you do things, but you give a lot of time to people. Mm-hmm. And you are here today, we've had a conversation for a project that I'm working on, mm-hmm. but you give a lot, you are very open, you are, out of all the writers that I know, you are probably the one that seems most accessible due to mm-hmm. your sort of your online presence, mm-hmm. your appearances at gigs, on panels mm-hmm. and things like that. And so just to see you succeed, to see your name on the screen, and to be able to take the picture and, <laughs> and like, I can him. <laughs> like, which is about my only bit of vague Scottish dialect. Um, That'd be good, don't Thank you. Although for ages I thought Ken was care. Are he? Um, and so, like, I'd say to people, like, I don't Ken. And yeah, so, I mean, that's a lesson for not using dialect you don't understand. <laughs> Um, and so your your second book, which mm-hmm. again for ages I was trying to tell people about, and I was like HWFG mm-hmm. by Chris McQueer, and then like what? <laughs> and um, apparently it's an abbreviation. Aye, aye. Um, but yeah, like how how did it feel after what was at least to the outsider a great success with things? Mm-hmm. How did it feel go, going again? I um I really 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 properly struggled with the second book because I started writing it straight after things was published, and I got kind of I don't know about ten or fifteen stories into the collection, and I was reading them over and I just I hated them all. I read them back and I just didn't like them. So um like I just I realised I was like I was reading the stories back and I was like these these stories are like a parody in my own writing. It's like you know, they're just they're all ending on kind of shit punchlines, like ones that weren't good enough for the first book. I was like, that just doesn't work. What has happened here? And I realised that I'm trying to write the same book again, basically. So once I realised that, I was like, oh, that's that's where I'm going wrong, basically. So I scrapped the 10, 15 stories, just deleted them because they were rubbish, and started again. I was like, right, I don't, I don't need to write the punchlines. I can try and actually write stories, actually write narratives. You no, know, they've got a beginning, middle, and end. So I started doing that and it just changed everything. And I found that I was trying really hard to be funny. And when you try hard to be funny, you're no funny. So all the jokes were kind of landing flat on their face. I was like, well, who says I need to write comedy? I could write something that's a wee bit darker. I could write kind of sci-fi stuff. I could write something weird. I've got kind of free reign here to write whatever I want. So I started doing that. And then once that kind of twigged in my mind, it was a lot easier. And I flew through it. So like, they'd given me, publishers had given me the deadline to hand in in like June. So I'd got to January, deleted all the stories that I'd written, and then rewrote it again. And it, in a kind of space, like three months, I'd came up with like um, 19 new stories. Just as soon as I'd removed myself from trying to write the punchlines, trying to be funny, I just found it so much easier. And I still managed to fit in a couple of new ones, daft ones ending on punchlines, but um, I was just getting with that mindset. I was, I was trying to write the same book again, so I just had to get rid of that. And what's the... Like, Good reception compared to Hings? Has there been comparable successes or? Um, it's not. It's not. Um, in terms of sales, it's not sold as well as the first book. 
Um, but I think when the second book comes out, it kind of gives the first one a wee lift. So maybe that's the cause, whatever. But um, I generally, it's been better, better reviewed, better feedback. Um, people commenting that the writing has got better. I put a lot of time into getting better at writing. I went back to college to study creative writing, just to learn how to do it properly and see where I was going wrong and try and iron out my bad habits. So I put a lot of time into just making my writing better. And there's a few kind of reviewers picked up on that, which was really nice. It was nice to see that that kind of effort didn't go unnoticed by people. So that was nice. So um, I knew I'm just I'm writing this novel with the new. So. It, seems, <laughs> it, it seems quite an unusual step for a published writer to then decide to go and learn how to write Aye. at college. Like how mm. did, what, what was that all your own choice? Where did Aye, you go? Just, just my own choice. Um, I just I felt like I, I totally winged the first book. I was just winging it. I didn't know really how to structure stories. didn't really know what I was doing. Um, left school quite early, so I didn't really get a chance to like do kind of higher English to get a wee bit deeper into the English language and figure out how to use it the way I kind of wanted to use it, the way I'd uh, read like authors doing it. So I just decided I'm going to go back to college, go and learn how to do this properly. So I went to City of Glasgow College, did this like professional writing skills course. So it was teaching you basically how to be a writer and how to make a living through writing. So there's a wee bit of journalism in it, a wee bit of writing for the telly, writing for the radio, as well as writing short stories and writing novels. So I learned all that and learned all the different disciplines. It just made such a difference to my writing. I'd, I'd recommend it to anybody, if, even if... Um, you know, don't think you're too good to learn more. Like, if you get a chance, if you, you know, if you can go back to college, uni full time, or if you can do like a night class, like do it. Like, you'll definitely you'll get something from it. Like, I've got pages and pages and pages of notes now from a creative writing course that I go back to every now and again. And when I get stuck, and it just it helps. It does. It's done wonders for my writing. Definitely, it's definitely improved it a lot. I think so, something that. I see a lot and I've seen when I've taught in the past is that people almost have, have an addiction to learning and it mm -hmm. sometimes seems like they do it in lieu of actually writing. Aye, aye. And do you think as someone who had their first book come out and be a great success without any education with regards to creative writing, any formal mm -hmm. training, any real background, mm -hmm. do you think, like, has that been your experience? Do you have a lot of people going, I wish I'd have done, oh, I would, but? Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of people make excuses, but um, you can, like, anybody, every, they say everybody's got a book in them, that's that's definitely true, I think everybody can sit down and write something, Everybody, everybody's got a story to tell, everybody's got ideas, you know, everybody all my pals if you talk to them and you try and press them you know if you were to write something what would you write they've all got ideas they've got everybody's got ideas for something whether it be for a film or a book or poetry or whatever everybody's got something in them it's just a case I think people can get too caught up and you know people will spend months and months and months planning a novel and never writing it you know people put off writing to go and learn about it and people do that but um as good as learning about it is and planning is important like the most important thing is just sitting down and writing and you won't get better if you're not putting what you're learning into practice so uh, just just do it that's my advice to everybody just do it sit down and write something <laughs> and do you think if you could go back five years mm -hmm. would you have knowing all that you know now would you have done the course before you wrote Hings or would you do it the same way you did it 
I don't know, I think I'd probably do it the same way I did because I think people appreciated that kind of rawness, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't I kind of look back on things and there's a lot, a lot, a lot of a change about it, but I think people liked that, it liked how raw it was and liked how accessible it was and they could tell that this was a new writer just kind of starting it. I think, I, I think people quite liked that, so I'd probably keep that, aye, do the same, aye. <laughs> and, 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 and you just mentioned that you are writing a novel. Aye. Is there anything at all you can say without, aye, aye, without um, prying, is there anything? I can I tell you a bit about it, so... Um, I started writing this about 18 months ago and it's only in the last two months that I've been happy with it. So for the 16 months leading up to now, I've been like getting 20, 30, 40,000 words into drafts and just hating it. And I, I do this quite a lot, I delete stuff. And they say writers shouldn't do it, you should always keep what you delete because there's always something you can use in it. But I just get fed up with it and I wipe it from my computer, delete it, empty recycle bin, make sure it's away. So I can never look at it again, and then start again, and like the story's changed so much, so and it, and its current form, what's what's going to be the finished product, hopefully, um. So it's called Hermit, so it's about um, it's about a wee guy. He's nineteen. He left school when he was sixteen, and in that time, he's just not left his house. He's not bothered to get a job. He's not bothered to go to college or anything. His mum's kind of at a wit's end, so she's kind of questioning like, so it's not it's not really funny. It's got funny bits in it, but it's quite kind of serious and quite dark. So his mum's kind of questioning where she went wrong. So it's a kind of dual narrative between the mum and the son. So the mum's questioning what went wrong, what's made him like this. And then the son is kind of talking about his kind of misremembered childhood and wee things you know, he's picked up on for his mum that she's not meant or whatever, he's misconstrued things. But anyway, this goes on for a while. And then him and his pal, he's got one pal and they only know each other through the Xbox, PlayStation, whatever. They kind of fall in with this group of like incels online and they kind of find a sense of identity and they're like, right, we're, we're incels, or well. So they kind of fall into this kind of cult and they find that um, this American guy has this kind of, um, he's claiming it as like a kind of commune down in London where like incels can just go and live and they won't need to get a job, but he'll pay for everything. It's just all comp. Like you just go down there, you can game all day, you can do whatever you want. It's just all guys like us, like them, and they can go and do whatever they want. So his pal decided to run away to join this commune. But like because of the wee guys like kinda of sleeping pattern, his mum will regularly go days without seeing him. She sees up all night, she's asleep, she's asleep. And then he's you no know, they just don't see each other that often, so it takes his mum kinda of a few weeks to realise. No a few weeks, sorry, a few days to realise that he's went missing. So when she reports him missing, the police are asking, you know, how long has he been missing for? She's like, I, I, I don't actually know, I couldn't say. So she becomes you know, public enemy number one. She's vilified in the press. How do you not know your son's missing? You live in the same house, blah, 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 blah. So that's, that's what happens quite early on in the novel. So it's just a story about her trying to clear her name, get her son back, and then what he's up to when he's at this incel commune that's not what he thinks it is. Nice. So, right. <laughs> um, has that got a home yet? Do we know? Not yet, not yet. I'm not finished it yet. So um, just been back and forth with my agent, kind of touching it up, getting it ready send away to places soon, so nearly at the end. So and what, fingers crossed. At, at what point did you find an agent? Because obviously you said that you approached um, 404 Inc. Mm, with mm. Hings aye, aye. and they presumably bought mm, it off you. Mm, uh, but at what point? Uh, it's only, um, it was after the second book came out. So, perhaps just before HWFG came out. So, um, 
agencies down south. She works for um, Marjack Literary Agency, and she came across Hings, and she represents um, David Keenan up here as well. This is Memorial Device and uh, For the Good Times. So he kind of, I, I told David she was kind of sniffing about as we but were, I was like, it's kind of weird, an agent getting in touch out of nowhere, what, what does it mean, what's the angle here? And he's like, no, nah, David Keane's brilliant, he's like, no, nah, she's brilliant, man, she's my agent, look, she'll look after you, it'll be good, good move for you, right move for your career kind of thing. So at this point, HWFG had already been written and published, so there was nothing she could really do with that, so, but now, like, just over the last year, she's been brilliant, just kind of, like, trying to help me develop my writing and looking over drafts and giving me feedback and advice, and that's been brilliant, like, having somebody fight in your corner, somebody to look after your paperwork and that kind of, you know, kind of, yeah. she can do all the kind of dirty work and all the contracts and stuff, that's why I don't need to, because before, like, I didn't have a clue, I was going into meetings, being presented with contracts, no knowing what they meant, and just signing stuff away and probably making all sorts of mistakes, so <laughs> it's good to know that that's been handled now. So, yeah, no, it's aye. good to have someone, <laughs> someone find your corner. Aye. And have you got, uh, no, we've sort of touched on this, but just to mm. uh, close, that mm. you were a chap who worked in a sports shop and mm-hmm. now you you know I mean three, four years later, mm-hmm. two amazing books, amazing T V show, novel on the way, mm-hmm. count probably countless other bits and bobs aye, that, aye. that we're not discussed, but do you have any advice for that person who may be listening to this instead of looking at aye. the manuscript? Aye. Where where is the hope? In this crowded field, mm-hmm. where is the hope. Aye, um, like if I can do it, anybody can do it, and I sincerely, sincerely mean that. Um, just, um, just make sure you're writing every day. Um, take all the feedback you can on board. Um, negative feedback. Try not let it get you down because you can take, you can always take a positive from it, and you can use it to get better and use it to motivate yourself. Um, when you get rejections, I had plenty of loads of magazines again try not to let it get you down just keep going keep you know look online um, social media is like number one tool for me it's, it's got me where I am just make sure you're looking up like agents publishers magazines look especially for kind of new magazines as well because they're good places to get in with and just build up contacts make sure you're talking talking to people talking to other writers and just build up your network of contacts and then just send stuff away as much as you can and just absolutely don't take no for an answer when it comes to agents and publishers just hound them you'll get you'll get there you'll get there might take might take a couple of months might take a couple of years but you'll get there if you're just relentless and you just focus on writing every day and focus on trying to get better and make sure you're reading as much as you can as well and that'll make all the difference just keep going just keep writing don't spend too much time planning and procrastinating and worrying about things just write and write and write and just one last one because mm-hmm. I've tried to write short stories. Mm-hmm. I'm not very good at them. Right. And, I mean, partly because I don't do any of the things you just said. Like, I'm not... <laughs> like, I'm not um, a goer when it comes to writing short stories. But you, within your work, mm-hmm. you see... The thing that I've come across is that I try and fit a whole world mm-hmm. into ten pages Aye. instead of taking, like, an excerpt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you seem to build whole worlds, mm-hmm. have a life-changing event go on, mm-hmm. and then exit stage left mm-hmm. within the same size 10 pages aye, aye. that I can't do it on. Right. And so 
Short stories, how? Like, how? Aye. Um, I don't know, I found this talking to a lot of writers. Well, so many writers start off with, um, like, the first thing they write is a novel. I found that fascinating because I could never do that. And then they always say, I find short stories really hard. For me, it's the other way about I'm finding writing a novel absolutely solid. I'm really, really struggling with it. So, like, for me, with short stories, what I would do is I'd come up with, um, I've just got a notebook that's just fully, like, like a title and then two-line description. So what I'll do is I'll come up with a kind of what-if scenario. So for, like, in things, slowly called knees, I was like, right, what would happen if everyone woke up and their knees bent backwards? So that's the kind of premise, that's the plot, that's your world there. And then, right, so what's, what kind of character, who would be the kind of funniest person for that to happen to? Who's going to have the best story to tell in that? So in, in knees, it's kind of, like, pick three, three people, I think, and just put them in this mad, mad situation and just see like, how their day would progress. Um, but it's just that like, I come up with like, a kind of scenario first, the world first, and then populate it with a couple of characters who I'm going to get the most out of, who's, who I'm just going to torture and punish and just wreak havoc with. So, and then it helps, like, with the first book, first kind of collection of short stories, I was writing to punchlines. So I would kind of have the kind of punchline first, then you can spend, you know, nine pages building up to that and you're just kind of getting ready to deliver the blow. Boom, last page, funny ending, one liner. And then with the second book, it was like, right, writing stories now, actually beginning, middle and end, and out of structure. So I wouldn't really focus too much on the ending, I would just come up with a kind of what-if scenario, describe the character first, like do like a kind of Bible for the character, that's what I do, so what's their name, where they're from, where they grow up, what's their biggest fear, what do they like, what do they dislike? Stuff you maybe not going to use in the story, but it helps give, give them a personality in your head. So when you put them in a mad situation, you know how they're going to react, and then just kind of let it unfold and just see what happens. Don't don't really plan them too much anymore. So. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much, yeah, well. Chris. And can you just close on telling people where they can find out more about you? I am. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter. So it's at Chris McQueer underscore. Um, you can get my books online from my publisher's website, 404inc.com or in Waterstones. Um, cool. <laughs> but thank you, Chris, and thank you for everyone for listening. So, um, again, I hope you have had an excellent new year and look forward to hearing from you about all the amazing stuff you're doing with your own writing. Please do get in touch. We are on Twitter at underscore au pod on instagram at underscore no at au underscore pod um if you're listening to this you probably follow us on social media so forgive that um but yeah it's been amazing talking to chris amazing just for having me on and thank you all for tuning in and i'll speak to you all soon Some places feel like home, and that's why I love shopping at Golden Hair Books. They're a small independent bookshop in Stockbridge in Edinburgh, and I'm delighted that they're sponsoring this podcast. You can find out more at goldenhairbooks.com, and you can visit them on St. Stephen Street in Edinburgh. I'd recommend it. Go and see Julie and the team. If you don't know what book you want, they will recommend one, and I guarantee it will make your day.